Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottens. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. We're so happy to have Dr. David Montgomery with us. He's a MacArthur Fellow and Professor of Geomorphology at the University of Washington. He's an internationally recognized geologist who studies landscape evolution and the effects of geological processes on ecological systems and human societies. He's authored more than 200 scientific papers and five popular science books, and he's been featured in documentary films and in news, TV, and radio programs. So, We're thankful to have him here with us today. Dr. Montgomery, I had the distinct privilege of hearing you speak in person probably a year or so ago in Illinois, along with Ray Archuleta, and that was just great. And I have to tell you, when I joined ASN, the first book that Monty had me read was your book, Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations. And to say it was eye-opening is an understatement. I also should probably add in full disclosure that I bought your book on Audible and have listened to it many times there as well. So I'm excited to be able to visit with you today here with Monty. Well, it must have been good, David, because she stuck with us. So. <laughs> oh, well, good. Well, um, I'm glad to hear that. It's a pleasure to be here talking to you guys. I've, I've known Monty for a while and um it's great to hear that he's uh, still encouraging people to read the book that got me into all this trouble in the first place. Yes, yes, for sure. I like how you've got it uh, on your website, the Dirt Trilogy. Um, using the word trilogy, are you a movie buff or, or are you one of the Star Wars uh, uh, buffs or just... Uh... Um, well, you know, we ended up having written sort of three books with Soil as sort of the key protagonist. We didn't really intend to write a trilogy. But, you know, once you have written three books on a subject, you just can't resist the temptation, right? It's, you got to call it a trilogy. Yeah, now, now we'll wait for the prequel. Uh, We're working on that. I'm sure, I'm sure you are. Cool. That's great. Cool. Well, I have all three books, which are great also, but really Dirt was just very pivotal for me and a really good place for me to start with that foundation of understanding what we've been doing. So, but one of the things that we love to do in reading your books, we kind of know a little bit of your story, but we love for our listeners to know, how did you get to this spot where you're talking about soil, where you're talking about regenerative ag and systems and people who you've come alongside? How'd that journey happen? Well, you know, I, I can, I'll try and boil down a, a very long journey into, into a, a little short story, but you know, I was trained as a geologist in college. So my professors were telling me to, you know, all the stuff that's covering up the rocks, all that soil stuff, you know, ignore it. You got to dig a hole through it to look at what's underneath. So go to road cuts, go to places where someone else has done the work of eliminating that, that nuisance stuff on top. So I was basically trained to really not appreciate soil. Um, and in grad school, I went on in a field called geomorphology, which is, is looking at how, what shapes the surface of the land. And you know, in most places, there's soil on the surface of the land. So, uh, soil is much more of an integral part of a geomorphologist toolkit than it is of a geologist toolkit. 
Um, so I started, you know, studying soil, looking at it, and the specialty I went into was soil erosion. I was looking at the problem for my PhD thesis of where stream channels begin, how how far you have to go from a mountaintop or a ridgeline downhill for enough water to accumulate to start carving a channel and start a stream. So, you know, so I was looking at soil erosion from a natural perspective, how nature erodes soils off. And that led me into thinking, well, how, do, how, do nature, how does nature build soils? So I had this background that I came to writing that dirt book with in terms of how soils affect uh, the shape of the land. And I got really interested in how soils shape human civilizations uh, also when I was an undergrad, because I bought a book that was written by a couple of soil conservationists employees in the 1950s. Uh, um, Carter and Dale, I believe, were their names. It was called Topsoil and Civilization. It's a classic old book. I found it in the bargain bin of the Stanford bookstore when I was an undergrad. And I bought it and I, and I started reading it and it opened my eyes to thinking that soil was actually a very critical resource and that its history had affected societies throughout, uh, throughout human history. So, you know, 20 years later, after working all around the world, studying natural processes of soil erosion and noticing that regions and countries where the land was degraded, the people were impoverished. I started to put those connections together and um, writing dirt was really my uh, exercise in doing the research in archeology span and the geology of different regions around the world on how people had treated their soil, how people had treated their land. And as, as you know from, from reading that book, it's kind of a depressing story looking at the backstory of how people have degraded land in society after society. So after I wrote that book, I started to get invitations uh, from people like Monty to talk to farmers and to, um, to share my experience on the longer framing of the erosional history of the surface of the world. And I started meeting farmers who had totally turned that around and restored fertility to their farms. Well, at the same time, my wife was doing the same thing to our yard in her garden, building soil at a, at a ferocious pace, at least the way a geologist would look at it you know, inches of soil a decade, um, as opposed to the centuries it would take nature to do the job. And when I saw farmers doing at large scale what Anne was doing in our yard, um, that really led to the second and third books in the, in the Dirt Trilogy, The Hidden Half of Nature about our experience in our yard, and then Growing a Revolution um, about interviews with farmers, regenerative farmers. So it's been a long sort of course of, you know, ex exploration, learning, and education for me. And I've been privileged along the way to meet some really innovative um, and interesting people in agriculture and farming who, through the, the rollout really of, of what we're now calling regenerative agriculture, have demonstrated ways to fix the problems I was writing about in dirt. So I've gone from being a bit of a, a history buff pessimist geologist to now being a very much more optimistic about our ability to um, restore fertility to the world's soils and to harvest a whole bunch of other benefits as well, you know, including maintaining high crop yields in a low input environment, reducing the environmental footprint of, of, of agriculture at writ large, but also the book Anne and I are working on now, we think that there could be very compelling benefits to human nutrition through regenerative farming practices, actually growing more healthier, more nutrient dense food. So it's been, it's been a long story and I guess that's what motivates, you know, uh, writing three books about it. <laughs> well, and, and to back up just a little bit about what you're saying there about being the, you know, it was kind of a pessimistic story and, you know, the erosion of civilizations, the cycle just repeated over and over. 
you know, a chapter by chapter, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, yep, uh, the Mayans, the Romans, the, you know, Sumerians, it just, and, and, and then the East Coast and uh, Kentucky, and we just keep moving West. And, and it's like, okay, I get the point here. You know, it's just, it's <laughs> like, okay, how long before our 200 to 300 year cycle is over? And then where do we go next? Uh, last time I checked, the map's pretty full. You know, there's, there's not a lot yeah. of frontiers in the world, right? No, and you know, and the odd, you know, the idea that we could go to Mars and start farming Mars. I mean, there's these two two critical elements missing there. They've got plenty of of dirt, right? What they're missing is air and water. <laughs> oh, details! Come on. <laughs> yeah, so we we basically have to get it right this time at a global scale. And there's there's all these lessons through history about what happens to societies when they ignore the problem of land degradation for long enough. And it's an easy problem to ignore because it plays out so slowly, right? It plays out over generations. So you really have to think about the world you want your children's children's children to actually be farming to, to really get up in arms about it today. But what, part of what turned me into an optimist about the issue, though, is I think that we're getting to a point where it's starting to make a lot of economic sense for farmers to actually wrestle with the problem of what with how to rebuild the fertility of their land, how to improve soil health, and that there's more short-term benefits that are becoming clearer as people develop methods and techniques and figure out ways to combine practices and products and ways that can actually build soil health. Um, and you know, and there's, I don't think there's any single magic bullet answer, but there's a whole different philosophy of how to look at practices and products to integrate that can actually be very effective over the short run, and that can be pretty darn um, effective economically as well. And that, that, that economic connection is what turned me into more of an optimist because for practices to be sustainable you know, in the world, they not only have to be environmentally sustainable, but they have to actually work for the people doing it. That is correct. And um, you know, to, to break that down just a little bit, you know, you're, you're doing one of two things. You're degrading or regenerating. Uh, there's yep. very little in between. Any practice that we do or system that we implement is, is doing one or the other. You know, and, and the modern broadacre stuff that we're doing in America still today because of our abundant, you know, glacial till, lust soils is still degrading. And it's, it's hard to make that change, like you said, I and mean, it's, it's happening over a long period of time. But on the other hand, what I find so fascinating is, well, shortly after you presented to us was uh, January of 2014 is when, when you were our very first speaker at our very first national conference. So we wanted to kick it off right with just understanding the connection between soil and, and civilization and, and what we're doing. And I, I really appreciate that you're available for that. And that was kind of, really, it was kind of early on. We, we, got, we suckered you into the dark side of agriculture here. But uh, anyway, we, uh, you know, it's, it's just kind of the gloom and doom. But then, you know, bumped into, you know, some crazies like my friend Gabe Brown. And I saw what he was doing and I thought, oh, wait a minute, we've got the soil that's, you know, many millennia old. And yet we can change our practices and nearly in a blink of an eye in, in soil time or nearly yeah. overnight, we, we are completely changing the dynamics of the soil. Is that okay from your perspective um, as a, you know, soil geomorphologist, isn't it just absolutely amazing what can be done in such a short amount of time when you get the system right. That is the mind-boggling part of it. And you know, and it turns out that there's you know there's some simple explanations for that when you dig into the science, but it's kind of a new perspective on the science 
that helps explain why it is that people like Gabe could turn his story around so fast and why people like, like and my wife and co-author on The Hidden Half of Nature could do the same kind of thing in our yard. You know, when, when she and I uh, took a soil science class in graduate school, the degree to which um, soil fertility was explored, it was mostly identified as a product of the sort of the innate chemistry and physics of a soil. And, you know, there's a lot to that perspective. It's not that that perspective is wrong. There's an awful lot to that. Both the physics and chemistry of soils matter a lot. But what really got short shrift was the biology, essentially the microbial ecology in soils. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm old enough that, that I was in grad school, a few, you know, more than a few years ago. And uh, we've learned an awful lot of soil ecology in the last 20, 30 years in terms of how to look at... Um, uh, the role of the bacteria and fungi in the soil that actually partner with and help plants. And so if you think about how fast you can build soil, you know, the, a, as a geologist, I was trained to kind of think of along the lines of, you know, if you took a hunk of granite and you stuck it out in the sidewalk, how many generations would you have to wait to watch it to fall apart into soil? Yeah, that's a slow process. The physical disintegration and the chemical changes of a rock to make it into clay, right? Mm -hmm. But when you, so in terms of making the basic geologic substrate for a soil, yeah, you're, you're basically either going to have to rip it up with the D9 and mechanically bust it up, or you're going to have to wait a long time for nature to do the job. Mm -hmm. But the amazing thing about, you know, dealing with organisms that have a 20 minute lifespan, like bacteria, um, is that you can, you can change their populations incredibly fast if you set the conditions up right. If you, if you give them habitat that's um, um, amenable to their life history, if you give them something to eat and a way to sort of reproduce and maintain themselves. And that's essentially at the heart of what a lot of regenerative farming practices are doing, is essentially taking advantage of those kinds of insights to set the stage for the, the rebirth, if you will, of the microbial ecology that can happen really fast because it's biology on steroids. It's, it's stuff that could happen really fast. And so if you think about re rebuilding soil fertility, not from starting from geological scratch, but starting with the, with the substrate, with the geological material already there, the silt, the sand, the clay, adding biology can be done really fast. And so if you start thinking about prioritizing the things that would enhance the, bi the biotic component of the soil, it's an incredible lever for actually uh, engendering pretty rapid change in the soil that can be put to benefit, not only for farmers, but if you're looking at, you know, there's all kinds of things where people are using um, fungi to clean up oil spills or to clean up toxins in soils. The biology turns out to be a really powerful agent of change in the soil, and it works both ways. If we set the stage for cultivating the beneficial life in the soil, we can build soil fertility really fast. But by the same token, if we degrade, if we maintain or introduce practices that degrade soil fertility, we can run it down pretty fast. Well, you know, the interesting thing about your books and your trilogy that you have, and plus more to come. And I want you to, to share more about your upcoming book uh, here toward the end. But the first one really identified the, the, the connections with the problem. And the second one offered hope from your own experience um, in your backyard, which, um, you know, you've described your backyard before. It just was almost um, concrete and how you've, how you've changed that. that. That showed how these practices can work together. And then the, the uh, Growing a Revolution, the third book. I mean, you're really looking at all these practitioners and what they're doing around the country to make these things happen. 
Um, talk a little bit more about that, that journey from what you discovered in, in your backyard to what uh, running into uh, other people that are making a regenerative uh, agriculture happen and, and how that's coming together. Sure. I mean, when, when, when I look at the, the, the dirt trilogy, I sort of look at the, 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 the book named dirt as the historical backstory to what went wrong with, with land and prior civilizations. And then the hidden half of nature is really a deep dive into the science of why it is that microbes, those bacteria and fungi that their practices um, can, can affect so rapidly, how that all works. And, and our window into that came when we bought this uh, house in North Seattle where we live and it came with completely degraded soil. And, and my wife, Anne, is a biologist and a gardener. And she took it on herself to really rebuild the soil. And um, her approach was to um, use organic matter to return that to the soil. And it worked remarkably well. We go into the details of how all that worked in the book. But it basically taught us the science in, in researching why it worked so well. Um, that underpins the kind of practices that farmers like Gabe Brown and other uh, regenerative farmers were, uh, were using. And once I started, um, at, when, when we were writing The Hidden Half of Nature and folks like you were starting to invite me to, to come talk to groups of farmers about the, the historical backstory, I started meeting regenerative farmers who had already restored fertility to their land. And I got very intrigued and started to visit some of them. And started to realize that the kinds of practices that they were employing had real parallels with what Ann was doing in our yard and that there was this sort of higher level set of principles that could guide the rapid restoration of soil fertility from anywhere from a home garden right on up to um, a really big um, uh, commercial farms in the developed world and even small subsistence farms in the developing world. And that's what sort of got me on the track with, with writing Growing a Revolution. Um, and was trying to make sense of why it was regenerative practices were working and square the, the observations that you could have by going and visiting some of these really innovative regenerative farmers and, and comparing their soil to their neighbor's soil and going, you know, something you're doing is right because your soil is awesome and your neighbor's conventional soil is, is you know, beat to crap and degraded. Um, and trying to put those higher level principles together and, and researching through academic journals, you know, what is it that's working there? It really seems like there is a sort of a confluence of principles involving minimal disturbance, uh, keeping cover, you know, living roots growing at all times in the soil uh, and growing a diversity of crops, that combination of no-till cover crops and diverse rotations that I wrote about and that others have commented on. Um, they really seem to work um, and it can translate across a wide range of, of environments, climates, but the actual practices you would use were really different in our yard versus a, you know, a subsistence farm in, in equatorial uh, Africa versus uh, North, North or South Dakota. Um, but those higher level principles really conflict with what we've mostly been thinking about and pursuing in conventional agriculture for the last hundred years. Um, so it's, I got real interested in putting the story together of, of how that, how those connections work um, and, you know, telling the story of the regenerative farmers that I interviewed along the way. Yeah. And, and really, um, and you allude to it there, the uh, principles are, are fairly universal, but yeah. the practices are always local, you know? Yep, exactly. And that's, you know, it's, 
we're always, you know, I think we're kind of programmed to search for magic bullets that can solve all our problems, you know, and that we like, we like the easy button, David. Well, the easy button is a great button when it exists. Um, but the, you know, the, 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 the sort of the, the messy nature of nature, if you will, is such that um, we often have to figure out how to adapt what we're doing to our local context. And this is another example of, of just how that plays out where we can, the guiding principles appear to be pretty universal. And, you know, Anne and I explored the, the, the deep why behind that in the hidden half of nature, where it's the, the way that microbial systems evolved with plants really sort of set the stage for how plants get their nutrition, how they tee up their defensive systems. And there's, there's really solid reasons why what we now understand about microbial ecology in the soil plays into the health of, of crops. And if you think about agriculture as essentially you know, applied ecology in the scientific sense of the term ecology, where you were trying to guide the development of plants towards our own ends to harvest you know, as many crops with as much nutrition as we can out of them. Um, understanding the template that nature developed on in terms of the partnerships between soil life and plants really becomes foundational for thinking about how could we have a really intensive productive agriculture that didn't degrade the land over time. How could, how we could use science and practices to solve the problems I was writing about in dirt. Um, and it really boils down to understanding those microbial partnerships with plants. Um, and a hundred years ago, that was all crazy talk. And now it's, you know, you go to the scientific journals and it's kind of hidden and masked in the way scientists tend to write for each other rather than the public. But in the hidden half of nature, Ann and I tried to, you know, take the, take the veil off of that and explain how it worked. And then in Growing Revolution, it's really an exploration of, well, does this work in practice? Do these principles kind of play out? Um, and I was really impressed with, with the job that farmers had done restoring their soil in, in years to a decade or two that I was trained to think it would take nature, you know, 500 to a thousand years to do. Well, what's great is you were able to see that uh, through the, the paradigm or the lens of that assumed 500 year. Okay. You know, a lot of people, if you have that paradigm, right, or, or that's the way it's supposed to work, and then you see something, many people would just, oh, that can't be possible. But if, oh, yeah. you're, if you're open-minded enough to be able to accept a uh, different understanding of, of, of what at one time you thought was reality, uh, you know, I think yeah. that everybody's challenged in that way, right? Uh, you know, farmers oh, yeah. have, to, have to be able to open their minds and realize that, oh, there is a different set of rules or paradigm for producing crops than maybe what I'm currently doing. And yeah, yeah. So I'm glad you were able to do that. It, that's a hard thing, I think, for most of us to do, to basically take the way we've been trained and then see the holes in it and then try and go, oh, well, is there a different way? How might we sort of backfill those holes or completely change our perspective? Um, but if, if, you know, if you look back at the way science has advanced over the, you know, since Galileo's time, you know, the last 500 years, there's this whole series of revelations where the way that we thought the world worked turned out to be not quite the right way to frame it. And people will then change that, you know, and the way that plants eat is a really good example of that up until 
de Saussure uh, demonstrated that photosynthesis was how plants put on their biomass. They actually captured carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, merged it with water to create sugars that, to build their, the, the backbones of their bodies. You know, before then, it was assumed that plants ate uh, hummus. They ate uh, humus, sorry. <laughs> they ate soil organic matter. Oh, hey, hummus sounds good. Hummus, yeah. That was only in the, that's only where chickpeas grew, right? <laughs> um, no, but uh, I'm going to make that mistake for the rest of my life. Um, the, but the, um, you know, the people thought that plants pulled organic matter up from the soil um, and that that was how plants ate. And it couldn't be more wrong. I mean, plants do pull up elements out of the soil. Obviously, it's, their roots don't only pull up water and, and all the mineral elements they need to come in. But we now know that they put, you know, the lion's share of their biomass together through photosynthesis. Um, and there's this, you know, replete examples through history of, of science providing a new way of looking at things and a new lens of things. Uh, and so what replaced the, the humus theory of plant nutrition? It was uh, Justice von Liebig and his, um, and what became the agrochemical revolution in terms of, um, you know, how we might add the elements that we think that are missing from a plant's diet to encourage bigger growth. But the, the thing that most people don't recognize about Liebig is that by the end of his life, he wrote two big books. He's sort of the, the father of the modern chemical industry, the intellectual grandfather of it. Um, and he wrote two big books in his lifetime. The first one was the one that led to uh, the interest in nitrogen and phosphorus as the main elements to add to spur plant growth. But near the end of his life, he was basically arguing that, you know, that's not going to be enough. We need to provide all the mineral elements that plants need for, for health and growth to actually sustain farming over the long run. And his second really big book was written in 1863. I forget the name of it now. I talk about it in Growing a Revolution. But the, the key point was really pretty clear. He was basically arguing that if we only went down the route of adding the major element or two as fertilizers, we would be undercutting plant nutrition and, and soil fertility over the long run. Um, and that message is only, I think, now starting to, to really cut through because uh, his first book uh, was a runaway international world-changing success. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's go there a little bit now. So, you know, one of the things, uh, like you said, it's only been in the last 20 to 30 years that we've had the tools really necessary to identify uh, microbial populations in the soil by DNA or PLFA or various other types of tools that we have to identify what's going on. And We've learned a lot of things about, you know, what uh, Dr. James White shared with us at Ag Emerge, our first year there in Monterey, about plants cultivating uh, endophytes uh, for their own use to send out into the soil to bring nutrients back to them. That, now yeah. that, that's a, that'll uh, change your, your way of thinking on uh, if plants are telling microbes what to do um, <laughs> and cultivating them. And, and yeah, so anyway, we've learned yeah. a lot things. And, and because of that, now we also have a lot of new tools on telling what nutrients um, we need. So just like you're mentioning, you know, NPK was at first and then all the micronutrients are important, but there's, you know, various uh, phenols and uh, alkaloids and yeah. um, other components within plants that uh, we can cause to go out of balance or from a healthy soil creates different uh, components in the final finished food versus maybe a conventional soil or, or a, a high input soil. 
And uh, I know you're, you're, I'm, I'm setting you up here to hit a home run on your new book. <laughs> and and we are going to, we're going to put the link in the podcast so that everybody can get on and, and pre-order, uh, you know, the uh, part four of the trilogy. And, um, uh, but tell us now what you're seeing there. If you can give us a few hints, um, what you're seeing, that connection between healthy soil, healthy food, healthy people. Yeah, well, that's, and that's essentially the focus of the new book, which we're still trying to put the finest, there's a draft of what chapter sitting right next to me here on the table that we're trying to put the finishing touches on. Uh, we think the book will be called You Are What Your Food Ate, but of course that's gonna, that can change between when the authors think about it and when the publisher puts it out. Um, but we're trying to explore those connections uh, between you know, healthy soil, healthy crops and livestock, and healthy people. And so we're looking at the ways in which farming practices influence uh, the nutrient density of foods. And you know, the sort of the take-home message is that there's, there's pretty solid evidence that the way that we farm can affect the mineral density of, of crops. Um, and, but I think that the, there's emerging evidence that some of the even bigger effects are in some of those uh, compounds that you were mentioning, things like polyphenols, the, um, uh, what we can loosely call phytochemicals. Um, compounds that plants make that actually, they make for not for our nutritional purposes, but for their own defensive purposes and their own nutritional purposes, but that once they get into our bodies and food actually serve to, to benefit our health. And so we're, we're basically trying, going through the, the, the stories and studies that, that um, around those kinds of connections. And I think that basically um, there's a pretty strong story emerging that there are very real effects um, they're not so much in the major elements that plants take up because the plant genetics does a pretty good job of constraining that. And, you know, and, you know, if, if certain elements are not present in the soil, well, they won't be getting into the, in the plants. So if, if you have, you know, unusual geologies that are lacking certain elements, that'll track through to the plants and any food that's grown on them. But that most soils tend to have, um, you know, most of the, you know, a complement of most of the mineral elements plants need. And it, but it varies locally. Um, but what's we've really changed are, are the biological delivery systems that actually get those elements out of the soils and into plants. And one of the things I was pretty surprised by in starting to look into agricultural issues was the degree to which some conventional soil tests don't actually uh, track, since they're only tracking um, readily plant available nutrients, they sort of under estimate what could be done by regenerating um, healthy soils in terms of, of um, rebuilding soil life that can help unlock some of the minerals um, and compounds that are actually in the soil to begin with. Um, so we're, we're diving deep into that. We'll it'll hopefully finish the book up this summer, which means uh, hopefully it'll be a, over about the time we get a virus for the, the uh, COVID-19 next spring or something. Oh, there you go. COVID twenty or twenty one. So, oh man, yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that that's for another podcast. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, let's keep it optimistic here. Yes. yes. Yeah. Don't don't be a pessimistic geologist, okay? Um, now, uh, but talking a little bit about that, so you have this book out here, and farmers want to do the right thing, do what's best, and and when you when you teach them and lead them in a way, they they will naturally gravitate that way over time. Now let's 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 think a little bit though about the consumer, and, and the consumer is becoming more aware of these things on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. How do you see the future 
of uh, a consumer who's looking for healthy, nutrient-dense food connecting with a farmer who wants to produce that a healthy, nutrient-dense food, realizing that it can't go through a traditional commodity channel. I mean, it, it needs yeah. to be hyper um, segmentized, if you will. Uh, it needs to be the opposite of our current food system. Um, yeah, it's, how, that's how do you a, see that coming together in your mind? Boy, you know, there's a lot of issues there in terms of if you think about how someone could do that, you know, today in the existing food system, you kind of have to get to know the farmer and what they're doing. Because if you're, if, if the connection isn't so much the conventional versus organic distinction, but if the connection is soil health, which you can build in a conventional system and you can destroy in an organic system, um, you know, if the, if the link is soil health, there's really no sort of labeling that is very clear guidance to a consumer. So, uh, you know, what Ann and I are doing now is buying most, as much of the food of our food as we can from farmers and farmers markets where we sort of know we can trace back, Oh, what were they, what were they, how, what were their actually growing practices? Mm -hmm. Um, when you start dealing with sort of large supply chains, there's sort of several ways to think about it. And, you know, I'll invoke the privilege of the geologist to talk about the real long-term upfront because how we would get here, uh, is, might be above my pay grade, but you could imagine the case where if we could convert, modern conventional agriculture to a more regenerative footing, one could actually build a broad base of more nutrient-dense foods in the supply chain and then um, integrate that all along the route. And there's, there's some large uh, companies who are very interested in developing more regenerative supply chains. Now, I'll refrain from sort of endorsing any of them by mentioning their names, but th I've talked to a number of them who are interested in, uh, in those kind of connections. Um, how we get there to actually shift sort of the, the conventional commodity supply chains into more regeneratively sourced uh, uh, foods, that's a really big policy lever to think about. Um, there's, we could talk about subsidies, we could talk about crop insurance, we could talk about distributed networks of farms and connecting, you know, consumers direct to farmer co-ops. I think there's uh, and that's where the answers might be somewhat different if you're sort of dealing with, with uh, vegetable farms near cities versus grain farms in low population density states with distant markets. There's going to be different ways to think about how to make those connections. But I'll, for, I'll hazard the prediction that over the next 10, 20 years, you're going to see just skyrocketing consumer demand for foods that are grown in a regenerative fashion from the confluence of their recognition that it's it's better for their um, sort of what you might call preventative health for helping to try and prevent the onset of chronic diseases, having more nutrient dense food. I, I, everything I re can put together on it seems like that's a good strategy. And you want to eat, you want to eat a good diverse diet of foods grown from healthy fertile soils would be your best defense against many chronic diseases and not perfect insurance. Nothing could do that. Um, but I think you'll start to see much more consumer demand um, because of the interest in their health, but also in interest in, um, in overall environmental health. Um, yeah, basically having a, a smaller footprint, environmental footprint for their own personal eating habits. Yeah, and I, I think that's an interesting concept when you think ahead. If, if all, all the 
trajectories are that regenerative agriculture will be, has to be, the future common practice. Okay. Yeah. Now, how long yeah. does it take us to get to that future? Probably a couple generations because you can only progress so far, you know, because of paradigm limitations within a generation, you know, from the farm level. Plus, yeah. you have the glacial speed of uh, bureaucracies involved with this too. Um, yeah, that may, that uh, yeah, may I do be, appreciate that, that comment, you know, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that may be the great anchor on it all is how, fa how fast our, our bureaucracies can change. Um, and, and you but, touched on the crop insurance. Really, uh, there's many elements of that that is preventing uh, doing more of these advanced practices. Um, but it'll happen over time. It's, the biggest question is, yeah, how, okay, we know where point B is going to be. Don't know when for sure. And, and we know yeah. where we're at today on point A but there's a long distance between point A and B and, and how are consumers going to get what they want? And I think there's a tremendous opportunity for, you know, like you said, either co-ops or consolidators uh, or information driven ways for farmers to connect directly with the consumer. Yep. To cut out the middle big food man and, and, and be able to retain more profits for their farm to where they can do more of the regenerative activities and the consumer can get what they know, uh, they can trust. That's a powerful symbiosis right there. I mean, if, if the practices that farmers can adopt are better for them economically, and if the food they produce is better for consumers from a health perspective, that's got all the makings of a natural symbiosis. And the question is, how do you sort of connect them and link them up? And one of the things that we've seen uh, play out here in, in Seattle in, in, the current, um, in the current pandemic is that you know a lot of the, the shopping and food supply system has been disrupted, um, but there's been new farmer co-ops that have been coming together that are sort of sub-regional. So there, there's uh, you know groups of farmers um, in sort of a particular corner of the state or valley have been starting to group together to kind of uh, form what you might call like a super CSA, where as a consumer you can order stuff online. Uh, that based on what they're expecting to harvest in the next week and people sort of pre-order the harvest and then it's delivered to sort of a central location in the city. So you're taking things, you're not just buying from one farmer, you're buying from a collection of uh, a co-op of farmers uh, who are like-minded in their practices and who've come together to actually market together and deliver the food that people in the urban environment are, are seeking. Um, and so far, that seems to be working pretty well for the farmers who, from what I can tell, have been going into it. Um, of course, restaurants in town are, are, are just, you know, completely hammered at the moment. Mm -hmm. But some of these, some, some communities of farmers have been pretty uh, swift and innovative in how they've pivoted to the sort of this different model of distribution. Um, and there was real worries in, um, among some of the folks I know in town here about you know, whether or not they'd actually be able to get in and join one of those before it was totally subscribed out. I think this, um, and I've had this conversation with some other friends, but I really think COVID-19 has just thrown fuel on the fire of regenerative ag direct to consumer. And yep. it has uh, just pulled back the curtain, shined a huge spotlight on the fallacies of our, as Will Harris would say, our centralized, commoditized, and industrialized food system. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, you look at our meat distribution system in the yeah, country formal, at the moment. And formal you, nationals, 88%. Right? 
Yeah, if you can basically you know, sabotage the whole system by shutting down a couple meatpacking plants, that's not a very resilient system. No. And, and, but the good part is, is we've seen that now. And, yeah. and I think that will evoke a change, don't you? Oh, I do. I think, it, I think it will greatly accelerate change. And there's sort of one other dimension to that, which is that if you look at the studies that are coming out on the, the health effects of COVID-19, the they're pretty much all showing that you know some pre-existing comorbidity a pre-existing uh chronic disease is associated with worse outcomes from infection with the co with the coronavirus 19. um and if you look at most of those sort of chronic conditions that greatly afflict americans today you can trace most of them to diet and you know part of it is what people choose to eat but there's this, this element of it that is in terms of if we're eating a mineral and antioxidant poor diet, it's not giving our body what it needs to actually essentially fight and suppress chronic diseases. And so if you think about what makes for you know, um, lack of resilience in the face of a pandemic, it's an unhealthy populace. Um, so if you wanted to actually... Um, protect your health as much as possible, whether in this pandemic or future ones, you know, we would be paying more attention to what we eat and how it was grown and trying to give our bodies what they need to have the best defensive medicine in place um, to help minimize the, 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 the impact when things like this happen. And plus, I think we also have become, uh, and I agree with you 100%, and I think we've also become, uh, our immune systems have become detuned as far as we're not exposed to the uh, complexity, diversity, and quantity of microbiological um, components in our, in our life from yep. working in sterile environments and, you know, staying in, in sanitizing. Um, you know, I, I get kind of a kick out of it. You think about how often does a livestock farmer get sick? Uh, <laughs> well, First off, he probably uh, guts it out. But, you know, when you're in soil and in ruminant uh, excrement uh, that is biologically diverse, uh, you are, um, you know, you have a surface uh, microbiome that's just significantly different, more robust than, than someone who isn't. And I think yeah, there's, there's a lot of the things we learn there. Yeah, one of the best things that, you know, you can do for young children is let them play outside in healthy, fertile soil. Yes. Yes. So I think in a way I just said I'm, I'm covered in crap, but I'm not full of it, David. <laughs> I, <laughs> oh my. It's well, an important distinction. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, when we, it, it's just fascinating to think um, about your, your journey and, and where, where, where you started and where you've come to and where you're going yet what what are maybe some specific people you think who have been impacted by your work or some specific things you've seen as a result of your work that you're just like wow i i i can't believe that that that's amazing well you know i one of the things that's been most gratifying is uh when i'll get um emails from people or uh meet people at at, at speaking engagements where um, they've read one or the other of the books as impacted either how they choose to farm 
or whether to even go into farming at all. I've met a, a bunch of people in their 20s and 30s who uh, have told me that sort of you know, one book or, or another was an inspiration for helping them actually decide they wanted to go into farming with a regenerative eye. I haven't had anybody yet tell me that they've read one of my books and they decided to be a conventional farmer. Um, <laughs> so there's, and one of the, the, one of the odd things about being a writer is that, you know, you, you write a book, you put these ideas together, you have experiences, you interview people, and then you send it out into the world. <laughs> And you can get these little echoes that come back from people giving you feedback about how it may have influenced somebody's thinking or changed uh, what they thought their life plan might be. Um, and, you know, and those kind of, um, that kind of feedback is incredibly gratifying because um, it's, you know, it's, we have this really big task in front of us in terms of how to change agriculture and make it more regenerative over the course of the next, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, which to a geologist is like really fast. So, uh, you know, to a policymaker, that's kind of forever. But, you know, we have this sort of this window in time where we need to basically fix this problem in a way that uncertain can be fixed, um, but that we have solid evidence for the downside of what might happen if we don't fix it. So seeing, getting these sort of bits of feedback about people who have, um, gone into farming or uh, I was talking to some people last week who are from the investment banking world who are talking about trying to set up companies or funds to help transition conventional farmers into more regenerative practices and people who are thinking of looking at farmland as a way to invest um, through not only investing in the farm but investing in regenerative practices to build equity in the quality of the soil over time so uh, impact investors as they like to call themselves um, there's a whole range of things uh, the area that I'm most frustrated about about sort of lack of impact so far frankly is in terms of national policy um, I, I would I think we really need to have some national goals for um, promoting and adopting regenerative practices, you know, not coercively, but with incentives over the next 20 years. Um, and I'd love to see a lot of that integrated into the next farm bill. I've, I've talked to the staffs of a couple congressional offices about, you know, how we might do that. Um, but I'm, I'm optimistic that there's, there's, a, there's a large number of people who are getting much more interested in regenerative farming, I think because it works. Uh, and there's other voices. Um, I'm far from the only person who's been writing and calling, writing about and calling for this. Um, but I'm really heartened to see the interest in it has grown so much from when I wrote that dirt book 10 years ago. Well, actually, what, 13 years ago now. Um, back then, no one was really talking about soil health. Um, you know, and I'd love to think that I've moved the conversation forward in terms of people thinking about it and talking about it. And I think we're kind of at the point now where it's getting the momentum of its own and let's hope that it snowballs over the next 20 years. Well, I, I think the evidence is clear is it is snowballing. Um, All right. I mean, like you said, you, when you started it, soil health wasn't even a word. Okay. I mean, soil health together really hasn't emerged until maybe the last, what, five to seven years, I would say it's become more of a, more of a moniker, but uh um, yeah, I mean, you've, you've moved the needle and um, I, I appreciate that. And I, I thank you for what you've done to, to change hearts and minds in this regard. And I think the policy always follows the people. Um, we, 
don't don't give up on that but but don't oh, yeah. I, I wouldn't i wouldn't fret about it you know i i think that'll that'll come when you got enough angry consumers you know that vote you know they're going to vote with their dollars but they're also going to you know vote with their uh in the poll place too for it and we did see yeah. that enter in the last uh, presidential election there was uh, two or three of the uh, democratic primary candidates who mentioned you know, uh, soil uh, regenerative ag. Now, if they knew what they're talking about, that that remains to be seen. But you know, at least uh, there was there was something mentioned. So. We can help educate them down the road. Um, there, yeah, there's uh, there's a there's a lot of work to be done. Um, but there's a lot of people. There's a lot of ores in the water right now. That that's a good. We just need to get them all pushing in the right direction, right? Yeah, exactly. Stop going in circles and decide we're all going the same way. <laughs> oh. Well, that's a, well, that could be a, a fairy tale, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think that we have, there's sort of a, um, a, a huge opportunity to try and enlist the political support of farming communities uh, around the idea of rebuilding soil fertility, re, revitalizing farm economics, and revitalizing rural communities across America. And combining that interest in soil health with the interests of activists and eaters in the cities in terms of more nutrient-dense food and better carbon sequestration on farms, you put those two interests together and it spans an awful lot of America. Well, we've we've heard about the unattended consequences, right? So, you know, no-till begets glyphosate when glyphosate begets the unintended consequences of chronic diseases and, and bee populations, yeah. all these things. And, you know, so we've had all these decisions in conventional agriculture before that, and then all of a sudden, a few years later, it comes up, oh, that was an unintended consequence. The thing I like about the path that we're on, helping our customers improve their soil quality, improve their nutritional program, and, and move more to integrating livestock and those kind of things, is that we have these unintended benefits. I love that. Like, I love, yes. Of the local economy, we're getting more jobs per acre. Okay. We're getting higher paying jobs per acre. We're getting more nutrient dense food. We're getting ecosystem services from a lack of uh, nitrate runoff and water cycle improvement, lack of downstream, you know, river surges. We're getting ecosystem improvements and carbon sequestration. We're getting in restored bird habitat. We're getting, uh, you know, restored, um, you know, other uh, fauna, um, deer, and these kind of things are able to survive with our with our cropland. And uh, bottom line, it's more profitable for the farmer. So yeah. the the beautiful thing is all of the unintended benefits of doing soil health right. And uh, uh, conventional agriculture is is uh, the longer I look at it, just full of unintended consequences. So, you know, flip, flip the switch and go for it. I think that perspective is right on. Well, I, I appreciate that. And um, I, I do appreciate you sharing it with us today, David. And it's been great to... Uh, get to know you and and it seems like uh, we see each other at a lot of conferences and and keep in touch and and catch up and i'm glad you and your wife are doing well there um i, I suspect there's more gardening going on now that we're all on lockdown and uh, oh, yeah and those kind of things so you're eating healthy i'm sure and uh but any any final thoughts uh, before we uh, part ways today no, I mean, I, I love your framing of unintended, unintended consequences of conventional agriculture versus the unintended benefits of regenerative agriculture. I mean, that that captures in a nutshell an awful lot of what we what we 
both been thinking and talking about. And I look forward to seeing you, you know, once we're free to move around the country again, I look forward to seeing you at uh, more of these kind of events. That sounds great, David. I really appreciate your time today. No worries. Pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you so much. Well, it is true what Kim said about uh, dirt, the erosion of civilizations was required reading. And uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's great. And, and David joined us there in San Antonio for our very first uh, national meeting. Uh, that we held uh, in January of 2014. So that's been over six years now. And at that time, he really hadn't been on the quote-unquote ag circuit. Uh, so it was kind of kind of new, and he came in, he's, and, he, and he, I remember him telling me something like, okay, so I'm a, um, a long-haired professor from Seattle. What are, what are these uh, farmers going to think of me talking to them? I said, well, they're going to really enjoy the message that you have to share. So it's great to see the impact that he's made. He's been to several national conferences now, made the complete circuit. I see him on a regular basis, and we get to talk and, and have a lot of fun together. So looking forward to his next book that he's got coming out. I think he'll continue to make a great impact. But I think the biggest thing in David's work is he identified a problem, and he's also been open-minded enough to discover and identify potential solutions to the problem. And that's exciting, and that's what we're all about here at Ag Solutions Network, is we see the problem, and at the beginning of our company, we're doing things to mitigate uh, the problem as far as in, in no-till and proper nutrient management, really slowing down the eventual, but it really wasn't changing it to be better. It was just reducing, you know, you're your band-aiding the cuts, if you will. But when we take a regenerative agriculture approach and uh, we add cover crops into the mix, that addresses a lot of things. We continue to uh, identify and make available advanced biological nutrient products that are really improving soil function and health and biological capabilities. But then our latest experiments and working with farmers to put animals back on the landscape, that's really making a difference. And it's weird because, you know, a lot of times people ask, well, just what do you sell? What we do is we work with a farmer, identify what their goals are, look at what their pain points are, and come up with a plan to implement the best soil health practices on their farm. And as a part of those soil health practices, we look at the cover crops, we look at crop rotations and what their water situation is, and we work with them on those various things. And part of our recommendations are products that we sell, uh, biological, bionutrient stimulants, micronutrients, uh, specialty starters and foliars that address the plant's needs at key points in its time. But we also recommend NPK solutions that he would get from another supplier as part of a complete production system so that everything that he is doing to that crop is done at the right time with the right product, you know, in the right way at the right place. So we're, we're really key on doing things right, not doing it easy. And we're, everything we're doing is putting together uh, a soil system that functions properly. And the exciting part is the more and more we learn from, uh, we've had Dr. Miller at, at our uh, event and we had Dr. Uh, Bush at the last event talking about the impacts of agriculture on human health. And when we get it right, not only as farmers do we profit in an operation, but we help our local communities, we help the environment, 
and ecosystem services, and we help the people who are going to consume our food. So if we get everything right and, and we have that opportunity to work with farmers and, and put together a, a plan and a program for their farm, one small little part of that is what we are doing with our Power to Grow products. It's just a really, really small part. But what we have to do is make sure that the farmer is doing everything in totality correct in a systems-based approach so that not only is he or she more profitable growing a better crop this year, but that it improves rapidly over time because that's what we're going to need in the future is better soil to create better food to create be a better life for people. Well, and I think that really sums it up in the sense that when we talk with folks that are adopting and have adopted these systems and we see it at Ag Emerge, there's an excitement at their home farm that they have a feeling of things moving in a, in a good direction and uh, that momentum really is building on itself. But I, I love to see them getting excited about the work that they're doing and I think that's kind of been missing a little bit. Well, and we've had more than one farmer tell us, you know what, before you guys started working with us, we were kind of down and out on, on what we were doing, not, not profitability-wise, but just kind of, you know, fed up with it. And they said, you've turned it around and made farming fun again. So I, I thought that was interesting. Tom was the first person that told me that, one of our customers in California, but we've heard it several other times since then, that we make farming fun again. And uh, it, it, farmers are up for the challenge, and farmers do want to do the right thing. And... It's fun to see when you when you give them the information that they need to be successful and the, the leadership and the guidance all along the way, they will take it and run with it and make it happen. Yep. That's exciting. That's good that's good stuff, as well, they say. Well we appreciate David and uh, and how he's helping people to discover the unintended benefits. Uh, that's that's our, our slogan of the day that we came up with. That's right. I, I see that on a t-shirt. There we go. There you go. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Ag Emerge podcast. And we look forward to uh, hearing from you if you have questions. And thanks for joining us today. 